Morning, church. Morning, church. Great singing. Good preaching together. If you're a guest, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. It's our prayer that our guests feel an increasing and deep sense of belonging as you're in worship with us each week, as you're connecting in fellowship. We'd encourage our guests to stop by the welcome booth out in the welcome center on your way out. Grab a copy of this book titled Following Jesus. I said to a guest, I handed it to, this will solve all your problems, and they smirked appropriately. This won't solve all your problems, but it will help you get to know us and, and, and understand what we're aiming at uh, when we gather as a community together, not only on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week as we gather in small groups, how we're trying to help each other follow after Jesus. And so we'd love for you to have a copy. There's someone at the welcome booth that if you had questions about who we are as a community of faith, you could ask that person, they do their best to answer your questions or get an answer for your questions. Everybody's invited to submit questions to the number on the screen. This number is also in your bulletin. And then listen in to the Next Level podcast. We sit down on Mondays of each week and record answers to the questions you've submitted. We do our best to answer the questions you've submitted. And we try to be humble enough if we don't have an answer to the question you asked to admit that. But here's what I love about the podcast. It sharpens me as a leader to hear the questions you're asking. Uh, it humbles me, to be honest, as I'm keenly aware of, wow, I didn't, I didn't get it done in the sermon in this way or that way. But most importantly, a community that's asking questions is a community that will be gaining understanding. A community that's asking questions is a community um, that will experience increasing freedom and joy because Christ is the light. Jesus said of himself, I'm the light of the world. That means as we take our questions to scripture and look for answers in God's word, we're going to have the light that brings life, that brings freedom, that brings joy. And so I wanna be a part of a community that's comfortable asking questions, because I have them, I have my own, as I'm sure you have yours. So submit your questions, whether they're about the sermon, and today's sermon, I, I, I labored over it, did not come easily this week, so whether your question's about the sermon specifically, faith more generally, we welcome your questions. Oh, and then you can find the podcast. Go to wherever you get your podcasts. Search Glen Ellen Bible Church, and two podcasts will pop up. One is the sermon, and then the next level podcast will pop up, and you can listen in. There are some biblical stories that are beloved and well-known even within the broader American culture. That is to say, even outside the church, these stories are well known. One such story is the story of David and Goliath. So well known, in fact, is this story that by mentioning it, simply mentioning the names of the two combatants, most people can come up with some of the details of the story. For example, most people know that David was only a young man, uh, the runt of the litter, to be exact, and um, a teenage boy at the time, and he was facing off against Goliath, a giant, nine feet, nine inches tall. And most people know that David slew Goliath with a single stone that came out of a slingshot that he hurled at him from some distance. You don't want to get too close to a giant, so the slingshot was optimal. Sunk it in his forehead, the giant falls down on his face. My eight-year-old boy, after Sunday school here at Glowing Bible Church, 
He's not eight anymore. He's almost 27. I'll never forget after eight-year-old Sunday school class came out and reported, and then David cut his head off. So, yes, details, right? I mention that because God was keenly involved in this act of warfare. From a secular vantage point, this story is often offered as the ultimate tale of the underdog, beating all odds, overcoming, going on to victory. From a sacred vantage point, this story is of God delivering his people from a foreign enemy, the Philistines in this case, through one man who had faith enough to believe God was able. Within 1 Samuel, the narrative as a whole, which is the the book of the Bible, the Old Testament, in which the story of David and Goliath is told, and then within the narrative of the Old Testament altogether, this story is of God's ongoing battle against evil. To redeem the fall of humanity, to restore all of creation, God's people, in this case, were being attacked, and God acted to protect them. And of course, the good news, and this is good news for us this morning, the good news is that through the preservation of Israel as a nation, threatened by Goliath, threatened by the Philistines, through through David, Israel's preserved, and through Israel, the Messiah came, in whom I hope everybody in this room is trusting this morning. So God acted through David to preserve the nation by which the Messiah came, through which Christ came. And how do I know this? How how do I know that God defeated Goliath? That God was involved, enabling, empowering David? Well, we know it because David affirms as much, declaring that the battle is his, that he's going to be victorious, not because he's a really good warrior, he's the runt of the litter. He was actually, in a lesser-known detail, he wasn't supposed to be at the front lines. His dad had sent him to check in on his older brothers. He's there by coincidence, and he takes personal offense at Goliath stepping out and challenging all of Israel. And he steps up and he says, who is that guy to challenge the armies of Israel? And then he steps forward, and listen to what he says as he and Goliath are squaring off, and they're talking smack a little bit, right? And they're getting ready. And Goliath is making fun of him and of all of Israel because they've sent this little boy out to defend them. David answers, you come against me with the sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Folks, this is no small matter. David believed that the name of Yahweh was going to deliver him. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied, you've insulted. If you're a note taker, you might jot down, Lord Almighty is not a throwaway statement. Throughout Scripture, God reveals himself to us by various names. My name's Kelly. It should tell you something about me. I was persecuted as a little boy in the 70s, having, yeah, having the name Kelly. You learn to stand up really quick, or it's not going to go well for you. 
God reveals himself to us by sharing his name, several of his names with us, describing facets of his personality as well as his purposes in the world. Offering these names to us sends the message he doesn't simply want to know us, he wants to be known by us. He wants to be in relationship with us. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45, God's revealed by David as Lord Almighty. And we might, we might blow right by that, the Almighty. If we're not careful, we might believe that's simply a superlative of some sort. After all, of course, we might think to ourselves, God's Almighty, He's great, on to the next thing. But the word Almighty is more than adjectival. The transliteration of the Hebrew phrase Yahweh Sabaoth means more than simply God is great or really good or impressive, mighty exclamation point. That's not the point of the word Almighty. It literally means God is the Lord of armies. In fact, David says that Goliath has offended the God of the armies of Israel. So what does all this mean? Well, to put it most bluntly, this name reveals that God is one who makes war. The name Yahweh Sabaoth reveals God as a warrior who leads a vast army of angels, the heavenly host, in fact, if you were paying attention, I know some of you were getting in late, that's okay. Psalm, 47, uh, Psalm 46 was on the screen. Famously, in Psalm 46.10, we're told to be still and know that the Lord is good. The Lord is God. At the tail end of that psalm, Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted on the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. We can be still. We can not panic. Because God, Lord Almighty, the God of the heavenly hosts, is fighting on our behalf. Is this how we picture God? leading a vast army of angels. Here in 1 Samuel 17, 45, that he's actually marshalling the men of Israel to fight the Philistines. Is that how we picture God? I dare say in 2023, we're really nervous about that, aren't we? That doesn't feel real politically correct. And we want to tiptoe around it. I'll take it to the next level, as any preacher might. Not only is God a warrior, a God who makes war, God is looking for warriors, people who will fight the good fight. Do we picture God as defending his glory, as well as the people whom he's saving, and his redemptive purposes in the world? Or do we picture him more like Santa Claus? 
My guess is that we're more familiar with and more comfortable with some of the other names by which God reveals himself, three of which are on the screen. And there are, I'm going to ballpark this at more than a dozen names in the Old Testament by which God reveals himself. Yahweh Rapha, or uh, Jehovah Rapha, if you have read more anglicized uh, translations. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals us. Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Yira, the Lord who provides for us. Or Yahweh Shalom, the God who gives us peace. My guess is we're more comfortable, more familiar with. When was the last time you heard a sermon on Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of heaven's armies. The name Yahweh, which is translated in all caps in your English Bible as Lord. So anytime you see uh, capital L-O-R-D, the translators uh, weren't caught up in the emotion of the moment and just capitalized everything. All right, so Lord, all caps, is uh, the word Yahweh. It's, it's the translation of the word Yahweh, that, which was the name revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai when he's being recruited and sent back to Egypt to bring Israel out of slavery. The name literally means it's uh, 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 derived from the Hebrew verb to be. It means I am. So L-O-R-D, all caps in our English Bibles, is a translation of Yahweh, which means I am. It speaks to the eternality of God. So he's saying, I, I was, I am, I forever will be. This is, who, this is the God we serve. So Yahweh Rapha is the Lord who heals us. He's always been our healer. He will be our healer. Yahweh Yira, he provides for us. He's provided for us in times past. He will be in times in the future. Yahweh Shalom, he's our peace. He always will be our peace. There's no peace outside him. And Yahweh Sabaoth, he's the God who always will, is, always has made war on those who diminish his glory, who undermine his purposes. Is this how we view God? I ask because we want to know God as he is, as he describes himself in his word, not simply as we'd prefer to know him, right? We want to know who he really is. We want to know him in total, not just partial, not a glimpse. We want to know him in full. Now, an obvious question is, upon whom does God make war? And the short answer to this question is God makes war upon any who are in rebellion against his authority, who are resisting him as king of over, over all creation, against any who will not acknowledge his authority and submit to him. Have you read Psalm 2? Second Psalm. It's on the screen. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that looks forward to Christ our Savior. But it's really clear that it's a, it's a psalm that's requiring obedience and submission. Let me read it for us. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they rise up. The rulers band together. Against who? Against the Lord. All caps. Yahweh. The one who's eternally existed and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains. They're, 
They're plotting to resist God. The powers of this world are plotting to resist God. Let's break his chains, throw off his shackles. The one enthroned in heaven, he laughs. The Lord scoffs at those that rebel against him. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion on my holy mountain. I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. It's referring to Christ, the son of God. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. Be warned this morning. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord, Yahweh, all caps, who's always been and always will, serve him with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. That's what we do when we sing. We celebrate his rule. Kiss his son. Show him deference or he'll be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Happy, blessed, well-placed, full of shalom, whole are all who take refuge in him. And it doesn't go well for those that don't. How's that for a song? The Psalms are the songbook of Israel. How's that for a song? Is this how we picture God? Again, I ask because we want to picture him as he really is, not simply how we prefer to think about him. And in today's passage, God's warring character and purposes figure prominently. As he judges the nations for their sinfulness. In fact, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts in the ESV and the RSV, translations. The Lord of hosts is mentioned 60 times alone in the book of Isaiah, 60 times alone. Over 250 times in the entirety of scripture, the name Yahweh Sabaoth is mentioned, the God of heaven's armies, the God who makes war on those who diminish his glory. Here's the opening to the book of Isaiah. This is chapter one. Unless the Lord Almighty It's not a superlative. It's a very particular character trait of the Creator God, Yahweh Sabaoth. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Two cities wiped out by the wrath of God upon them. The Lord Almighty... The God of heaven's armies, which is what the New Living Translation uh, renders it, could have utterly destroyed Israel. This is Isaiah's opening to the book. Could have utterly destroyed the people of God, except he shows them some mercy. Remember, the, the character traits of God are not in competition. It's not either Yahweh Sabaoth or the mercy of God. God in his perfection presents all of who he is to us. And we're called to submit to him. And in the opening of Isaiah, Isaiah reflects on, unless he had shown us some mercy, he would have wiped us out like he wiped out those two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And of course, we know that the survivors that Isaiah is referring to were the remnant of Israel through whom Jesus came. God, in his perfection, in his sovereignty, didn't wipe out Israel so that we in this room could trust in his Savior this morning and be saved from the wrath to come. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we're in the series in the book of Isaiah titled God's Faithful. God is faithful to defend his glory, to deliver his people, and to redeem all of creation. That's his faithful, right? There's a quick overview of Isaiah, these first portions on the screen. We didn't even touch on the prologue. Isaiah is a very long book, 66 chapters. This sermon series is only 11 Sundays, so we're just going to scratch the surface. We started in Isaiah 6, the commissioning of the prophet. We skipped Isaiah 1 through 5, which is a prologue about how bad things were. And Israel was in rebellion, the people of God, Judah, in rebellion and needed restoration. And Isaiah begins by lamenting, if he hadn't shown us some mercy, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Isaiah 6, he sees not only are the people fallen, but he sees, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he hears God say, who will go for us? And he answers, I'll go. And he's sent to the people of Judah. And the first person in the narrative that we meet with is his meeting with Ahaz in chapter 7, king of Judah. Judah's under attack, and I like to call it the faith dilemma, and we face it all the time, every day. Will we trust in God or in someone or something else? And Ahaz, when Isaiah goes to him, Isaiah is sent by God to say, trust in the Lord, but Ahaz says, no, I'm going to trust in Assyria. And he gathers all the temple belongings together, the the possessions of Israel, the treasury of Israel, and he mails it off to Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian king, and he says, come and deliver us, protect us. And in response to Ahaz's faithlessness, Isaiah launches into a judgment against all nations. It goes from chapter 13 to 24, 12 chapters of just this horrific Judgment coming as Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of Heaven's armies, shows up, not just against Judah, but against virtually every nation in the ancient Near East. Isaiah's point is, no, don't trust in Assyria. Don't do that. Don't you know that every nation is coming under the judgment of God? He's saying no, and so in chapter 13 to 24, actually 13 to 23, it's just this list of nations and the horrific things that are about to be unfolded against them. The list is on the screen of the nations. If you've got your copy of God's Word open, you can just thumb from Isaiah 13 to 14, you'll see Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Cush. Cush is modern Sudan, if you follow global events, Sudan's in civil war, and American uh, ambassadors are being airlifted out of ancient Kush right now in the last few weeks. Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Judah, Tyre, all listed. God's people are being told, don't trust in other powers, trust only in the Lord your God. To Babylon, Isaiah 13, 6, the prophet says, Wail, weep, wail, for the Lord is near to you, and not in a good way. 
Yahweh Sabaoth is coming against you. To Assyria in 1425, Isaiah 1425, he says you're going to be crushed. The nation that you've decided Ahaz to trust in is going to get crushed by God's judgment. On the screen, Isaiah 22.5, as he gets finally to Judah, and there's this refrain of Judah's in a dire situation. Oh, what a day of crushing defeat. What a day of confusion and terror brought by the Lord. And then he defines exactly who this Lord is. The Lord of heaven's armies. The God who makes war. Yahweh Sabaoth. And it's a very particular, he says, the Lord of heaven's armies upon the valley of vision. The walls of Jerusalem have been broken. The cries of death echo from the mountainsides. The valley of vision, where is the valley of vision? It is not a geographic location. It's a reality. It's like the valley of the shadow of death in which the Lord is near to us. The valley of the shadow of death is when we as humans face death, we can have the Lord near to us through trust in Jesus Christ. The valley of vision, you don't, it's, it's meant to be uh, ironic. You don't catch a vision in a valley. You catch a vision on a mountaintop. But in a valley, you can see something. You can see how far you've fallen. In the valley of vision is the place where we see the disparity between our character and the one who's high and lifted up. That's what the valley of vision's about. Yahweh Sabaoth is coming against those who have caught or need to catch a true glimpse of their own sinfulness and how far they have fallen from grace. What's Isaiah's point? 11 chapters, 13, 14, 15, up through Isaiah 23. What's his point? His point is that we're not to trust in any but God. We're not to trust in foreign nations. I'll get to it in a minute. We in this room, we're certainly not to trust in America. We're not to trust in our money. We're not to trust for salvation in anybody but the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. That's Isaiah's point. And if, if 11 chapters from 13 to 23 weren't enough, Isaiah culminates in chapter 24 talking about he's coming against all of creation. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, it will bring to mind Romans 1. It's on the screen. Then the glory of the moon will wane and the brightness of the sun will fade. Why? For the Lord of heaven's armies will rule on Mount Zion. All of creation's under the judgment of God. All right. Now, some will contend that this is only an Old Testament reality. Claiming that the God of the Old Testament is wrath-filled and vengeful, while the God of the New Testament is loving and gracious and forgiving. In the God of the New Testament, I would agree. He's loving and gracious and forgiving. But the wrath of God is a theme in the New Testament. It's simply not the case that there are two different gods in the two different testaments. And we do ourselves a disservice not to pay close attention to see that. 
In fact, as we offer the gospel to those we love, right, friends and neighbors and family members, our children, again, we want to present God in his entirety, who he really is, because it's in his, his person of wrath that we experience. It's when we face his wrath towards sin that we experience his mercy. I'll give you some examples. Jesus. Jesus treats the Old Testament as authoritative. I don't know if you know this, but there are people who say, well, I love Jesus, I love the New Testament, but I don't care much for the Old Testament. I don't want to read the Old Testament. Well, folks, we should take some cues from Jesus. Jesus teach, handles the Old Testament as authoritative. He accepts the stories. Not only that, he accepts many of the wrath-filled stories of the Old Testament as authoritative. And when he describes his own ministry, he often utilizes his history from the Old Testament. For example, when he describes his second coming, which we wait on here this morning, he says, as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be when I return. Well, the days of Noah were difficult days when the entire population of the earth was wiped out by a cataclysmic flood again in judgment, God's judgment against the sinfulness of, of that age. He says, as it was in the days of Noah. So we've got Jesus referencing back and treating Noah's experience and the report from Genesis chapter 11 and, and onward as historic fact. And then in describing Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus describes what it'll be for us, what it'll be like for us to stand before our creator and give an account, right? He says, it'll be, it'll be uh, better. How does he say it? Truly, I tell you, it'll be more bearable. For Sodom and Gomorrah, their citizens, on the day of judgment than for those who reject me. So again, he references uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Our Savior does. Arguably the best ethical teacher in the history of the world. The one who gave us turn the other cheek. Reference Sodom and Gomorrah. The one who said do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, the golden rule. He's the one that referenced Sodom and Gomorrah. And said, that's what it's going to be like when we stand before our Creator, if you're not trusting in me. The New Testament writers pick up on Jesus' teachings. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 31, Hebrews is uh, a book written to believing, converted Jews. 10, chapter 10, verse 31, he says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. The Apostle Paul opens Romans with the declaration that the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness, the godlessness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth. That's how he opens. Arguably the weightiest, deepest theological book of the New Testament. And in the little New Testament book of James, short letter, the name Yahweh Sabaoth is mentioned. Now, as I read this, this letter is written to Christians. And the, the name Yahweh Sabaoth is invoked. He writes, listen, you rich, rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion is going to testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Wow. 
You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Your unjust economic practices in the marketplace are going to testify against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. It's not a superlative. It's not just saying God's great. It's Yahweh Sabaoth, the God who makes war against those who diminish his glory. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Folks, that was written to believers. So what are we to do? How do we relate to Yahweh Sabaoth? The one who marshals heaven's armies against those who undermine his glory. Most simply put, we confess our sins. Which is to say we agree with what God's word says. We call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. So we confess our sins. We repent, which is to say we turn from our wickedness. We turn toward godliness to honor him with our lives. We submit. How do we relate to Yahweh Sabaoth? You relate to the king by submitting to him. Kiss the son, Psalm 2, or he'll be angry with you. We submit to Christ's reign and rule in our lives. Just we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's not in somebody else's life simply. That's in my life I pray that. That I would submit increasingly to his rule and his reign in my life. After all, Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If I had to guess, most often when we hear the story of David and Goliath, we picture ourselves as David. Careful. Careful. Or at the very least, we picture ourselves as Israel. Factually, can't be accurate, most likely, in this room. Most of us were born Gentiles, outside the Jewish community. We'd be more closely associated with the Philistines. It's just how it is. In fact, we know, according to Ephesians chapter 2, that we were born under God's wrath. We've got to own that. We've got to be honest with that. Here's the good news. It's true that God makes war on those who undermine him in his glory, his goodness, his work of redemption, his purposes. But he also shows mercy. Paul says that he... God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. It's on the screen. Paul says, we have now been justified by his blood, his suffering. How much more shall we be saved? Saved, not from making mistakes. <laughs> saved from God's wrath against our sin through him. For if while we were God's enemies, that's who we are outside of Christ. If we want our kids 
to experience the good news, folks, we have to offer the bad news. I'd go so far as to say, to the extent the American church is truly growing, and I mean growing by people coming out of darkness into his glorious light, I mean growing not simply in attendance, I mean growing by regeneration, people dead in their trespasses and sins, coming to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. To the extent that the American church is growing, it's growing because we're telling people the bad news and they're realizing how good the good news is. Apart from faith in Christ, we are God's enemies. Through faith in Christ, we're reconciled to God. Through the death of his son, through whom we receive life. After first service, someone came up to me and says, you should tell your favorite New Testament story. My favorite New Testament story is in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus rolls up like a general onto the shores of the Gerasenes and meets a demoniac and delivers him. Picture Normandy. Jesus rolls up. He's not been invited. It's outside the promised land. But he goes across the lake. He goes ashore. And he delivers a man held captive by demonic power. That is the picture of what's going on globally. God has come. God has come. And he's delivering us from the kingdom of darkness. And he's restoring us and setting us free through faith in him. Amen? Amen. I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, we pray for your goodness to us. We pray that we'd not, be, we'd not make you over according to... Um, well, I've, I pray we'd see you as you are. I pray we'd see you as you're described in Scripture. And that we'd experience more freedom and more joy as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Ken and Brenda, drive out or down front. They'd love to pray with you if you want prayer. Come on at this time. Let's all stand together. We close in song.